Welcome to the Michigan Minds Podcast, a quick and informative analysis of today's top issues from University of Michigan faculty. Thank you so much for joining Michigan Minds. Can you please introduce yourself and share a little bit about your role at the University of Michigan? Certainly. My name is Earl Lewis, and I am the Thomas C. Holt Distinguished University Professor of History, Afro-American and African Studies, and Public Policy. And I also founded and I currently direct the Center for Social Solutions here at the University of Michigan. Can you share a little bit about the focus of your scholarship and research? So for the better part of four decades, I have been identified primarily as an American social historian. I've written on different aspects of American history, uh, especially African-American history. Uh, but I also have a, a prior life as a head of a major uh, philanthropic organization. So I've done a little uh, work on the philanthropy side. I've written about American higher education more generally. Uh, and so um, cover a lot of territory. You mentioned that you are the founder and director of the Center for Social Solutions. Can you tell us about the center and what led you to establish it? The Center for Social Solutions was established in 2018. At that point, I was ending my stint as the president of the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation in New York City. And I had been telling my students for the better part of three decades, they should plan their lives in 10 year intervals and every five year pause and to see if you're doing what you really want to do. And so I took that advice uh, and decided that really what I wanted to do was to create a new center and that addressed a handful of problems uh, for a dedicated period of time. And so I realized I had about 10 years left while I was on still be on payroll. Uh, and so I opted to uh, leave what many thought was perhaps one of the best jobs uh, in the country uh, to uh, create a new startup, uh, a startup that really tried to focus on four problems. Um, one having to do with diversity and democracy. And the second one, uh, looking at slavery and its aftermath. Uh, third problem, really centering on water quality and security. And then the fourth, uh, thinking ahead and wanted to ask questions about the dignity of labor in an automated world. And so those were the four pieces that animated the creation of the center and brought me back to the University of Michigan. And I say back because I was here on the faculty previously from 1989 to 2004. And I left in 2004 to be the provost at Emory University in Atlanta and took a 14 year uh, break from the University of Michigan before returning. You were recently awarded a significant grant through the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation's Just Futures Initiative competition. What research projects will this funding support? So uh, going back to in uh, the summer of 2020, after the aftermath of the deaths of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, uh, certainly the philanthropic community, uh, like a lot of other sectors, realized they needed to be part of the solution rather than uh, somehow implicated uh, in um, what was going on. And so Mellon, uh, like uh, some of his brother sister foundations then issued a call and yes, we were able to answer that call and were successful in uh, actually securing a grant. So for the next three years, we have a team of colleges and universities stretching from Minnesota down to Georgia that will be working together uh, to develop location specific 
the racial histories of their communities with an eye toward actually suggesting reparations. And so the idea of reparations has a long history um, and we, I won't go over it all today, but this is an occasion for uh, colleges and universities to work with partners in their communities to actually craft a community sourced and almost crowdsourced uh, history uh, of those communities with the idea, is there an argument to be made for some kinds of reparations? Uh, and this is really stems from work that's actually already occurring. Evanston, Illinois, uh, actually engaged in such work a couple of years ago and now has uh, come up with a plan uh, for community-based reparations in Evanston. Asheville, North Carolina voted to do so, uh, its city council uh, this uh, past summer, summer of 2020. Uh, the state of California, the governor has uh, issued a request and that the whole state uh, examine its own implications, both in slavery and other forms uh, of uh, discrimination and come up with a case for reparations. So we're building on that work uh, to knit together in these uh, institutions. And so uh, the research will involve all of the colleges and universities telling their local histories. Uh, and we're going to record it. Our media partner to work with us on WQED, the public television uh, broadcasting station out of Pittsburgh, that will be working uh, to chronicle all that is happening in these various communities. So, in part, this project stemmed from both the Mellon call, which came quickly. It was like August and we have five weeks to actually pull it together. Um, but uh, last year I had the good fortune of teaching a course in public policy entitled History, Reparations and Policy. And so I had a group of graduate students who worked with me uh, to begin to really think through some of the critical questions. And so I had come and wanted to teach this course because I thought the whole topic of reparations warranted uh, some deeper analysis on the part of the academy. And then uh, Mellon's call for just futures uh, seemed the really ideal moment uh, for not only for my what we were working on in my course, but to actually elevate it uh, and to think about this as a series of replicable and perhaps scalable solutions that could be offered uh, to the nation. I mean, this is in part because uh, as going back to 1988, the late John Conyers, congressman from Detroit, had been um, entering a bill into the House of Representatives on an annual basis, which became known as HR 40, uh, to create a commission uh, to study the efficacy of reparations uh, in the United States. And that bill has never actually made it uh, to the floor. Um, but, and I kept thinking, okay, we can keep waiting for the federal government uh, to get to this, or we can actually use the Evanston, Asheville and models uh, from, of local community action. And uh, as a scholar of American history, I know that sometimes national change comes because of change at the local level. And so we decided uh, that we could take advantage of energy that we thought we could actually um, began to organize and direct uh, in these eight and nine communities across the United States. And why is it important for communities to be engaged in this type of work? It's exceptionally important for communities to be engaged in believing that they can shape the future. I, mean, I think part of the challenge and part of the despair that we've seen in these last 
uh, few months and years is that uh, folks in some ways believe they have no control over their own uh, fate or their own futures. And what we like to believe that no future can be claimed unless it's a just future, hence the title of, of the Mellon program. And we believe by coming to communities and asking them, so talk about your histories, understand your role in, and you fill in the blank. If you could change any parts of it, what would you do? How do you begin to actually shift uh, the dialogue? If you use Evanston as an example uh, from what you can glean from the historical record, Evanston started asking that question and realized that his black and brown citizens played uh, a disproportionate price for the war on drugs, uh, arrested and incarcerated at higher levels than would have happened uh, normally. And so then if the city was going to legalize marijuana and tax it, why not actually in a sort of ironic twist, use the proceeds from that to actually begin to now correct uh, what had are already occurred by emphasizing certain kinds of community development, economic development, educational opportunities, et cetera. That was one solution. That may not be every community's solution, but you never actually get to solutions until you begin to tackle and address uh, the question head on. And we think that's a worthy pursuit, um, certainly nationally, and we believe that is successful. This is a model that can be shared and replicated and hence scaled, uh, and uh, we may all be better off as a result. So it is, of course, Black History Month. And with so much mm -hmm. of your work striving to address racial inequities, I'm wondering if you can share what you think could be done better in our communities to advocate for racial and social justice. It is Black History Month, and I, I'm a kid of the South. Uh, I was born in Virginia in 1955. I like to tell my students I was born just in time for Brown II, uh, where the Supreme Court ruled uh, that all schools should be um, desegregated with all deliberate speed. For people like myself who were born in 55, all deliberate speed took 15 years uh, before we ended up in desegregated school settings. And so understanding something about the slowness of change uh, is something I actually learned uh, in a firsthand way uh, long before I became a historian. And so when I come back and now in this work and the work that I have been doing for the better part of four decades, I'm reminded that we can all play a critical role in really redesigning uh, how we think about the past and how the past informs the present, but how we can also use that as a bridge to the future. And so part of what we do at our center and where my own scholarship and how it connects to Black History Month is, is the first thing is you actually say, there is something called African-American history. Carter G. Woodson started Black History Week in 1926 because most of the textbooks uh, and many of the academic journals denied that African-Americans had actually played a role in shaping the country other than as, uh, in for, as forced labor. Uh, during slavery uh, and then in the period thereafter. And so this was an attempt to actually uh, really correct a wrong. We've moved beyond that point of now just having to say, no, African-Americans contributed, but how, in what ways, what were the, the lessons to be learned? How do we actually understand this? I mean, so I mean, if you think of how people pit, 
knowledge against each other. I mean, the debate between um, should the story start in 1619, uh, as uh, was suggested by the New York Times uh, last year, and their treatment of 400 years uh, of commemorating the institution of slavery 400 years ago, or in 1776, as uh, former uh, President Trump's commission attempted uh, to argue in, in the last few weeks of his administration. Um, for American historians, and that's a false choice. I mean, clearly the story starts even before then. Uh, and our job is to make sure that we tell that full story unvarnished uh, with all the contradictions that are part of human history. Uh, and, and Black History Month is a way to anchor our, our efforts uh, to do that very thing. So Black History Month, I think, uh, is a way for us to collectively pause and ask a, a series of questions about how we actually have created this country we call the United States of America and what have been the ways in which individual communities have helped shape, have directed, have given purpose to what we think of as the founding principles of this country. And so there's this whole literature about America being a shining city on a hill, um, seeking to become uh, more perfect uh, in its union. Uh, there's no way to understand that search for perfection uh, without really diving deeply into the story of African-Americans. But it also wouldn't be complete if we didn't add the story of native peoples and how they connect. And, and then you begin to add others and you realize is this rich texture I mean, when I was a kid, we used to talk about um, America being a melting pot uh, and use the um, metaphor of sort of the stew all coming together. And by the 1970s, historians came to realize that was the wrong metaphor, uh, that the metaphor perhaps better is a salad bowl. Uh, and that because with the salad bowl, the, the lettuce and the carrots and the radishes and the tomatoes and the avocado and whatever else you put in it is still there and can stand alone. But when mixed all together, it also creates something called the salad. Uh, and so if you sort of think through uh, that, using that metaphor, pulling out the avocado, you can actually tell a story about the avocado uh, separate from the story of the salad itself. Black History Month, in a way, utilizing that metaphor is an attempt to tell the stories of African-Americans, both in relationship to the larger country uh, but also distinctly in their own right, meaning is that you get a twofer uh, in, in effect uh, and, uh, and we're better off and we will, I think, improve and enhance our understanding of really uh, that larger union uh, that is the United States of America. So what advice can you share for those listening who want to help create a more equitable and inclusive society? I think part of our task individually and collectively is to actually um, become more comfortable listening to others. I mean, the first task here, I think for any of us who seek to create a more just and equitable society uh, is to um, make sure that the information that you are absorbing is verifiable and uh, authoritative uh, because in today's world, there's a lot of noise and, uh, and a great deal of junk <laughs> that's out there. I don't know, I wish I had a more elegant way of describing it. 
so being discerning consumers of information, uh, informed, uh, and where you are seeking to verify that the information you're receiving is coming from reputable sources is actually critical. So that's the first part. Second part then is asking um, really an old kind of philosophical question, which is, is it possible to do good and be well in doing so? Uh, and in some ways, how do we make sure that we're not just only looking out for the enhancement of ourselves and our immediate families, but we realize that we're in a symbiotic relationship uh, and that uh, my advancement impacts your advancement and collectively, uh, if we're all advancing, we're all better off. And that's in some ways going back to that fundamental sort of notion uh, that uh, we are actually more alike than we are uh, unlike uh, is critical. I, I tell my students oftentimes, I says, well, we now know with the unraveling of the human genome that all humans share 99.9% .9 of the same DNA. And so that means in an interesting way, all of human history has been written about one-tenth of 1% 1 of difference. Now there was a you know, 100,000 basis points, um, but it's still a tiny, tiny fraction. And so what if we start back with that 99.9% .9 and ask, okay, so how do we make sure that we're benefiting all that connects us uh, and where do we start? And if there are inequities and we see discrimination and we see, and you name it, then isn't it our job to stand up and be accounted for in a way by saying, I am with the 99.9%. Uh, and that's usually what I end up saying to my students. And I think it's actually a lesson for all of us. How do we stand for the 99.9%? Thank you so much. Is there anything else that you would like to add? Uh, the only other thing I would like to add is that um, we truly must understand that we can be the architects of the change that we want. And part of the work that our center is undertaking uh, and in partnership with others is indeed to join in being uh, such architects. Um, but if we all adopt that view, uh, the world can get better and we all uh, can thrive uh, together on this planet as a collective. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Michigan Minds Podcast, a production of the University of Michigan. Join the conversation on social media with hashtag UMichImpact.